We want to pick up in Mark chapter 12, and I think maybe you'll see the implications of that. We'll kind of tap into that before we're done together. And I want to read to you just a few verses, beginning in verse 38 of Mark chapter 12, all the way to the end of the chapter. Jesus has demonstrated to the scribes that he is not only the son of David, but he is also the Lord of David. He is not only the Messiah, the one that's been expected, but he is greater than they had expected. He is the Son of God. He is the one who is empowered with divine authority here on earth as God with us, incarnate, Emmanuel, with us and for us. Beginning in verse 38. And in his teaching, that is Jesus, in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. May we see this as the Word of God that speaks to us and opens our eyes to His goodness. I want us to walk through this text and begin to see some of the powerful things that are visible for us. The first thing I want you to see that Jesus demands genuine devotion and obedience rather than hypocritical piety. This, this passage is kind of broken up into two different parts. And last week we saw Jesus turning the questions back onto the scribes, the ones who ought to have known who Jesus was and honored him rightly. He turned the questions back onto them and challenged them. And I would believe, I believe challenges us to the idea that we might have underestimated what we originally think of Jesus, that we're probably excited about other things more than we're excited about Jesus, and that when Jesus asks a question, specifically a question relating to a text out of Psalm 110 that relates to a text out of Genesis chapter 14, He is implying to you and to I that He is greater than we first asked or even imagined. But now He asks a different kind of thing. He asks them to consider what generosity is. And he begins this with the first part here of challenging the people to beware of some things. The reason being that Jesus demands genuine devotion and obedience rather than simply hypocritical piety. And he gives, I don't know if you saw this, he gives seven warnings to the scribes. Seven warnings, and I think we can walk through each one of these warnings, and I think we can see some principles about generosity, beginning in verse 41, demonstrated to us for this woman. And I think hopefully it will shape maybe the way we think about Mother's Day, and maybe even hopefully shape the way we see the church and the place in which we now live. You see, the coming, to Jesus, coming of Jesus results in a greater level of accountability. One of the most terrifying places you can be is in this room at this time when we open the Bible together. 
Because there's a sense in which if you don't know, you could plead ignorant. Right? If you didn't know that this is who Jesus is, and if you didn't know that this is what Jesus calls us to be, and this is what Jesus calls us to do, then you kind of get off easy, right? You can kind of just walk. I didn't know. I have, nothing, I have nothing to be held accountable for. But the Bible over and over and over again shouts out stern, even violent warnings for false teachers such that people, if, if, if you consider yourself a teacher, the, the book of James tells us that you shouldn't easily or readily aspire to the practice or the office of teacher because you will be held to a double account, you won't only be held account for what you know that God has shown you in the Scripture, but you'll also be held account for what it is that you passed on. And misleading people, passing on false teaching, unbiblical teaching, is something that over the course of the entire Bible is one of the worst and most awful things that can be done. We saw that one of the promises that we make even to children, right? Jesus, the sweet, loving Jesus, throws out a threat, does He not? If you cause one of these children to stumble you're going to wish you had a stone tied around your neck and you were thrown in the ocean. And he goes all Godfather on us and he begins to like kind of threaten us as if to say that, man, if you mislead people, you are in a bad spot. And this same kind of theme is picked up in verse 38 when Jesus drops seven warnings that I think you see here. So here's seven things that we walk through here that I think Jesus calls us to be aware of, that Jesus calls us to be wary of and Jesus calls, calls us to either confess or call out in our own lives. The first one is it says that they craved con- recognition. So beware of the scribes because the first thing that's wrong with them is that they crave recognition. Did you catch that? It says that they walked about in their full-length prayer shawls. Right, so they went to great lengths to be recognized for who they were and what they did. They demanded to be recognized. For this kind of a person, the worst thing, the worst fate for a person who sees themselves in this way is to blend in. One of the worst fates for a person is just just to be one of the crowd. And to simply think that they're special and they're entitled to being recognized. So here's one of the first things we ought to be aware of. Like this, whenever we begin to feel entitled to something, whenever we begin to feel that that we have a right to something, and whenever we feel like that who we are isn't being recognized rightly, beware, you're on the path of the scribes. You're, you're on your pathway to something that Jesus absolutely says is awful, and He begins to show that is dangerous for the people around us. So if you ever find the words coming out of your mouth or the thoughts like, you don't know who I am, you, you don't recognize me, Beware, you're on a path that Jesus absolutely condemns. The second thing is that the scribes were in to beware because they demanded acknowledgement of status. Did you catch that? It says that they expected people to rise and to honor them. They demanded an acknowledgement of status. They demanded, thirdly, attention to their rank and the position of authority. Did you notice there they were sitting up front? So this is something I, I challenge you with and I challenge some of the people here with, uh, when we set up and tear down on a regular basis. Like we want to save the seats of honor for guests. So what the practice would have been here is that the, the most important seats were taken apparently by the scribes. And so what was typically the case, they didn't have even folding chairs in this, in this particular place. You, you only had a few little bits of furniture and everyone else would have sat on the floor. 
But the teachers and the people of authority would have sat up on the front or along the benches along the side of, uh, along the, side of the synagogue, inside the temple, inside the room, so that the rest of the people would sit and the people who would teach would sit up in front on higher chairs and right beneath that would have been scribes and other leaders who were in chairs where they could readily speak literally down to the people who were sitting. This is important. This is, this is something I think that, that speaks directly to our culture, okay? The way I kind of word it this way, beware of anyone who parks in the front and sits in the back. <laughs> Just beware, right? Um, now, this is a funny thing for you. For those of you who congregate toward the back of the room, you'll learn one of the key, uh, key effective modes of communication is you speak to the back of the room. So if you don't want to make eye contact with me, you should hide up here in the front. I usually speak directly to you in the back. Just saying. Um, <laughs> But, but this is something that like, I, I, re- I regularly kind of see this in our culture. And I, w- I want you to see this, this entitlement for position that typically happens. And I rem- I'm reminded of the brokenness of our world. And there's two things that I hate because it reminds me of how broken our world is. The first one is that sign in the bathroom that reminds people to wash their hands before returning to work. And the second one are handicapped parking spaces. Because both of us, Both of us remind us that if there wasn't a piece of paper to remind us not to be disgusting, we would be, right? Don't you hate that? We live in a world where it's like, oh, oh, oh I have to wash my hands before I touch other people's food? What? Okay. Like, like, Like we live in a world where you gotta put that somewhere. And the second thing, we live in a world where you have to remind people that they don't deserve the closest parking spot. Because if there weren't signs, and here's the funny part, if there weren't harsh penalties and tickets related to that sign, you and I would congregate to the front and think, oh yeah, I deserve this first spot. So do you see this? Do you, do you begin to realize this? Do you begin to see this as kind of our culture? We, we regularly, naturally incline ourselves toward the best spot, the best position, the place where we're at a most advantageous spot. Now that's either, it depends where you are. If it's in a concert, we want to get to the front. Right? If it's at a game, we want to be at the 50-yard line. We want to be as close as possible. We think we need the best spot in the house. If, it, if it's in a parking lot, it's in the place where we want to be closest, where we don't have to walk. Never mind that someone else, right? I, I remember I had, you've heard, I've heard this before. Some people are like, well, you know, when I go to the mall, I pray to God and that he'll give me a parking spot. And I'm like, that's cool. God provides, you know, I absolutely cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Um, and for prayer and petition, cast everything before the Lord. I got that. Go for that. Um, but I, I'm just, just going to throw something out there. What about the, the, the sweet old lady that needs that spot? I mean, is it possible? What about praying for her? I'm just kind of being the devil's advocate. What if you were like, dear God, let there be spots in the back so I can save the spots for the people that need the better spot? I could be wrong. Just could be wrong. But one day you and I will need that spot in the front. And until then, we want to save that for the place for someone else that needs that honor. But the way this plays out in other gatherings, and I'm not going to make any eye contact here, but you'll sit in the place, maybe not of the greatest honor, but you'll sit in the place where you can blend in and hide. And instead of saving that for the other people, you'll get in the place that you can blend in and hide so that everyone else stands out. We tend toward these things. This is our natural inclination to want the best, to want to be first. And Jesus is pushing back on that and saying that inclination to be first, that sense of entitlement for rank and position and authority, that entitlement to attention and status might, if we're not careful, undermine who Jesus has called us to be. 
The fourth thing, it says they expected places of honor. They insisted on sitting near the host. And Jesus says that the greatest among you will be your servant, your slave, or as we read earlier, like a child. So beware when you see it coming up in me. I mean, the way this looks for me is in consumer terms. Like I'm going to go buy something and I do like, I don't know if you do this, like 36 hours of research before I buy something dumb. And, uh, and I do all this research, and, and, I, and if, I don't, if I'm not careful, I need to stop myself, like, because I'm going to buy the best one, right? It just, here, here's the question. Who, who convinced us we needed the best? Who convinced us that, like, we're the ones who deserve the absolute, the one that will never break, the one with the name brand? And when you begin to ask those questions, I think you realize it's possible, it's possible that Jesus' words for the scribes apply to us. And in the ways that we often seek place of honor and attention and we're kind of inclined toward that which is best, we may be undermining this good news that Jesus has done something for us that's great. The fifth thing, it says that they take advantage of the vulnerable. In this case, it gives a stark contrast of a widow, but it even says quite literally that they devour widows' houses. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus is referring to here, but there seems to be evidence of just like, just like in our own day and age, people who are in religious authority sometimes abuse that power, take advantage of others, thereby destroying and dishonoring the lives of many people. This seemed to be the case as well. So here's what this means for me, right? Just, if you would, please pray for me. Pray for me. God has put me in a situation of spiritual authority over you. And if you submit to me and to this church, the Bible, book of Hebrews tells me, that I will give an account for your soul. Your soul. Like, Jesus will look at you and go, not only will they say, you know, like, account for yourself in the way that you have believed and confessed the gospel is true, but then they're going to look at me and go, you're responsible for that person also. So pray for me. Pray that I don't use this as something to destroy people. Pray that I don't use your trust of me to take advantage of you. Because, it are, again, it is our human nature to want honor. It is human nature to take advantage of people. And we need to be reminded regularly that people are God's gift to us. Pray that we will always be a people that give the place of honor and the place of protection for those who need it. Pray that we would be a group of people that doesn't take advantage of people who are in a vulnerable state, but that we are a group of people who are always like Jesus, keeping our eyes out for those who are living in vulnerability. Shame on us if we take advantage of those situations. Verse 40, it says, the sixth thing, it says, they were experts in appearing pious. So their pseudo-piety made them say long public prayers, which is as if to, to kind of imply to you and to me that what we do in private is actually more important than public. The prayers that you speak before God, and I would argue even the prayers that you do not speak, the lack of prayer is much more important than any pseudo-piety or pseudo-prayer that we engage in in the time that we're together here this morning or any other Sunday morning. God sees your heart. He knows your heart. Here's what this means for me, and this was, I think this means for you, if the gospel doesn't first exist in the most private and intimate places in our lives, then it doesn't exist anywhere. So like if, 
if, if Jesus' ministry of reconciliation, if Jesus' ministry of forgiveness and restoration isn't existing between my wife and I, the closest person in my life, the person who knows all of my flaws, then it doesn't matter what I say to you or what verses I read to you on a Sunday. It's fake. And I, like the last warning, am under the worst of punishment. So this is what this means for us. If, if the gospel doesn't exist in the most private places, as we saw this last week, if we'd rather talk about anything else but Jesus, then talking about Jesus for an hour or so on a Sunday morning means nothing. Multiple times in the prophet, specifically in Joel, God speaks out through the words of the prophet Joel. He says, I hate your feasts. I hate your celebrations. And why would God say that? toward their sacrifices and the time that they got together to sing and to praise God, it was because the rest of their lives they were worshiping idols, not honoring God at all. And Jesus seems to hint at this. Just because you can say all the right things, and some of you, you know who you are, you have mastered the language of Christianese to the point where you can talk to people with Christian churchy lingo and a non-believer has no idea what you're talking about. Be careful. That special language means nothing. It means nothing. The language of humility and confession that you speak to a loving God is the language that matters. And friend, you know how this works. That starts to play itself out. You don't believe me? Remember what I told you? If the gospel isn't existing between my wife and I and my own family, which incidentally is what the Bible calls a pastor to have, right? If that doesn't exist... Well, then have you ever been there, the awkward moment in the room where like a, a, a husband and wife or like a boyfriend and girlfriend are fighting and you're just like sitting there watching? You ever watch that? You see that? You see how the brokenness that exists on the most intimate level spills out and hits everyone? So also this is true for us. If in our most intimate places we don't see God for who he is and Jesus for the Savior that he is, beware, it's probably more obvious than you realize. And your subtle cynicism, your... You would think it's passive, but this aggression that you're showing to the people around you is simply an overflow of this pretense. These people were experts at appearing pious, but the last warning is that they will receive the greater condemnation. Luke 12, 48 says it this way, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. Friend, you have been given the good news. You have been poured out upon by God himself, this saving and miraculous work of giving you new and eternal life. If that isn't something great, I don't know what is. And that eternal wealth has been poured out onto you and onto me. This means that if to whom much is given, much is required, then you and I who are the recipients of the greatest inheritance in all of eternity have much that's expected of us. As I implied earlier, James 3.1, it says that not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that they will receive an even stricter judgment. These are the warnings. These are the things that God has called us to see. May we be a group of people that begin to see these things fruitfully show up. And if you find yourself in one of these spots where you, man, you, you, really, you really hurt if someone doesn't honor you, if you find yourself wishing, you know, somebody's like, oh, so-and-so is great, and you find yourself thinking, well, what about me? If you find yourself having envy for the, for the most important spot or the most important recognition, would you just stop for a minute and maybe just do me a favor, confess it? Confess it to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want glory here. I don't want glory to come to you. I want glory to come to me. I would rather be the center of attention. 
And I think when you confess it, Jesus will begin to show you something amazing. And I think you'll see this toward the end of this chapter. Because we know, simply said, that if Jesus demands our genuine devotion and obedience rather than our hypocritical or false superficial piety, therefore we now know that the biblical giving then is the voluntary act that's flowing from a thankful heart that acknowledges that God possesses all that exists, which involves giving of oneself and all that one has and trusting God with the results. So let me walk you through three principles I think that are kind of illustrated for us here. There's three principles of biblical generosity. The first one is that it all belongs to God. We are merely stewards. We don't own anything. It all belongs to God. In essence, God has called us to be generous in all that we have by spending our boss's money. Right? Ever been here? Um, I've only had a little bit of uh, experience with this, uh, but some of you who are like travel on work, some of you, maybe your business sends you out, you find yourself like spending money you wouldn't have spent, namely like, I don't know, a plane ticket, first of all. And it's funny how like when the boss buys, buys a plane ticket, it's always the more expensive one, right? Whereas if you buy it, you're like, whoa, this is almost the cheap one, right? You know someone's buying you dinner. It's kind of funny. I don't know. This is just me. I'm just confessing it to you. Don't, don't harm me here, but I find myself, you know, I need to drink water because I'm committed to fitness and living to 90, but I find myself when someone else is buying dinner wanting to buy some Dr. Pepper rather than just water. Just me? Right? Oh, you're buying dinner. I really am hungry for a steak today. You, you felt this? Have you felt this? Like, oh, someone else is buying this. I can splurge a little. Friend, that's not an evil thing when we, when we see that all things belong to God and are granted to us by God. That's actually a perfectly beautiful and supernatural tendency to which we can go, hey, God's paying for this. Let's get some more, right? God's going to cover this one. God's, pay, God's picking up the ticket on this one. Let's splurge a little bit. Oh, first class seat, God's buying this ticket. And we've come to find out that if, if all that we've been given is God's, then we hold on to it much more loosely. And we give and share it much more generously. Here's the way I would illustrate this to you. I, I try to be a good neighbor. Um, I'm not very, when it comes to borrowing things, um, so I try to loan tools, but I also borrow tools. And I'll borrow it, and I'll just forget that I have it until you remind me. And so I may borrow like a saw or whatever, maybe a, a, a fertilizer spreader. And so imagine for me, if you come back to me and you're like, hey, Jonathan, can I have my fertilizer spreader back? In essence, saying, it's mine, give it back. But imagine what I would look like if I was like, no, no, I'm keeping it. Friend, I, I would argue that that's probably what is being pointed out here of these wealthy people that gave in a certain way. They really believed it was theirs. And so they gave little in a small proportion. So also, I think God owns everything. And when we begin to realize that God possesses and owns everything, well, then we start holding on to it much more loosely. One of my favorite, the band Sixpence Numb the, Six the Richer, easy for me to say. Kiss me. Yeah, that one. Remember that one? That comes from a phrase that was coined by C.S. Lewis out of mere Christianity. And I love this. He says that every faculty you have your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, moment 
is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to His service, you could not give Him anything that was not, in a sense, His own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you that it is really like what it is really like. It is as if a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, C.S. Lewis was British, so I could, Daddy, I'm sorry. Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. So the picture here is if like if my daughter came to me, not if, this is what they do, and they come, they're like, hey, we want to buy a present for you for Christmas, and they, they spend my money to buy me a present, right? I haven't, like, have, has my wealth grown any? No, I just kind of recycled it, right? And hopefully I just drop enough hints, I want that one here, Right? So it's silly to think that I've somehow gained anything from this. Friend, God is no different. He possesses all things. He is the owner and creator and the author of all things. They're all His. So of course the Father, C.S. Lewis says, does. And this Father is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper. But this is where he speaks strongly. Only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. In fact, he is sixpence none the richer. We see this picture of the scribes who who position themselves in places of authority and you see rich people coming in and, and giving and turning over their proportion of wealth, their tithes and offerings to the temple for their ministry of atoning for sacrifices, atoning sacrifices for the people. And then you see a woman in stark contrast who comes all, who comes in and simply empties her coin purse of a very small thing. And you see the contrast. Because when you recognize that God owns everything, you have a funny way of being more generous with what he gives you. It's kind of easy for me to give the fertilizer spreader back when I know that it wasn't mine to begin with. It's kind of easy to return that power tool. Of course you can have it. It wasn't mine to start with. And it begins to become more easy to be generous when we realize that the boss has got this tab covered. And it becomes easier and easier to honor God rather than to feel like we have somehow contributed something of worth to God as though He didn't already own it. In the end, your greatest sacrifice for the wealthiest God of the universe makes Him sixpence, none the richer. He doesn't need anything from you, but like a loving Father, He is pleased with the gift that you give Him, even if you bought it with the money He gave you. You see, money only reveals value according to this particular picture. In our society, I would argue, values some very interesting things. In fact, much of what the Bible teaches is highly unprofitable in our culture. But I don't want to just kind of convict you with the way that you're generous, but I want to challenge you to be excited about it. See, see, the motive of the heart, the understanding of who God is, is where this comes from. I've shared this with you before on a few different occasions, but every single month I have to write a few different checks. 
And one of the checks I write is, uh, is to put money back in savings for both of my daughters. Okay? And about the same amount of money, I write a check uh, for the utilities at my house. It's about the same amount. Now, here's the thing. Whenever I write that check to put into my daughter's savings account for, I don't know, I mean, God help us, a wedding or college or whatever, like just something, I have this, this weird feeling every time I write that check. This is not enough. This is not going to be enough. I mean, unless some crazy interest rate happens, like this, this isn't going to be enough. And I find myself wishing I had more to give. And the exact same amount I write into a check and I send it to Midco or I send it to all the whatever, utility, water, power, trash. I find myself writing the same check and every single month I find myself saying, this is too much. I wish this were smaller. I wish I could give less to these people. Why is that? Why is that? Friend, you know that there's a deeply different relationship happening. On one hand, there's a person who's kind of lording their power over me, and I owe them for the thing they've given me. And on the other hand, there's a person I'm investing in, and I want to see fruitfulness and bountiful, plenty kind of fruitfulness in the future. And I find myself constantly thinking, I just, this is not enough. This is too small in this one area. But because my heart is in a completely different place, and I have no love for mid-continent or... I don't, I don't even know their name. I try to block whatever, whoever you are here, right? I, I, I don't find myself loving them. They're just making money off of me. They're profiting off of me. I don't want to give them anything. And friend, when we realize that God has bankrupted all of heaven for you and for me in Jesus, that he is the author and creator of everything, so therefore he has entrusted everything to us, we can begin to see what we do have radically differently. And we can begin to be generous And instead of thinking, oh man, i got to give this much to this or that, we find ourselves thinking, what can I do to give more? How can I chop some of these things out of my life so that I can invest more heavily? Now for these people, they were giving to the temple, the ministry of the temple to the people. For us, this is where we're a bit different. Okay, we give to the ministry of the church. All I can say to you, I would love to convince you how awesome this is. Again, I don't want you to feel obligated in this. We at no point want to be the power company to which you're like, oh goodness, they're an offering again. Here we go. Here's what I would rather do for you. I would rather encourage you with all of the amazing things that God is doing through the generosity you're already exercising. So this is, this is I mean, I can't, I can't share all the stories and I can't make eye contact with you, but prayers are being answered all over this room and God is doing some amazing stuff. And some of you I know, I've watched you over the course of the last six months to the 18 months, let's say, and you are not the same person you were 18 months ago. And God has radically altered your view and radically altered your life. And for some of you, it's radically altered your relationships and your marriage. And all I got to tell you is, man, that's something I want to invest in. I mean, this is going to sound harsh. I've been a pastor in different churches, different kinds of things here. And this is the first church I've been a part of that I want to give to. I, like, I genuinely, I know what God's doing here, and I want to invest in it. We give a massive chunk of what everything that you tithe or give to this church, we give away to church planting and sending missionaries and church planters on this continent around the globe. Why? Because we want to be generous. And we think that in the end, we only have what God has given us. And so if He's asking for something of us to do the ministry that He's ordained to be done around us, 
then we ought to loan him back the thing that was his to begin with. And rather than seeing it like the power company, God forgive me, we want to see it like the ministry that God is doing and flourishing and fruitfully multiplying around us. We realize that in the end, everything is God's. We're simply stewards of it. We're just holding on to it. The second thing I want you to see is that generosity is giving. It is not buying or throwing away. So this woman came and had very little, very, very little, yet she gave all. And Jesus seems to summarize it by saying, this poor widow has put in more. It's, it, what, a, what a clever use of the word more, right? He has put in more than all of those who are contributing into the offering box. That means this woman giving all is giving more than the people who gave some. This is important because this gets at our heart of giving versus buying or throwing away. So here, just let me walk you through this, okay? There's a difference between giving, buying, and throwing away. Let's start with buying, okay? Even Uncle Sam knows the difference. He calls it quid pro quo. If you buy something, say from a nonprofit, you don't get tax exemption because you've received something in return. Quid pro quo, literally this for that. So when you give this for that, what do you do? You pay tax. You pay sales tax. So even Uncle Sam knows the difference between buying and giving. And when you give a contribution, say to a church like us, which is a 501c3 or to some other 501c3, that's a charitable contribution. And Uncle Sam is like, no, you can't give, you don't get to deduct what you give to Walmart. You got something out of it, right? But you do get to deduct what you gave to someone who is serving the community. Get the difference? Even Uncle Sam knows the difference. Here's why that's important. Most of us, if we were really honest, when we let go of something and we give something, deep down inside, we feel entitled to something in return. If we were really honest, we give away, but in, in, in the reality, we're not giving at all, we're buying. And in the back of our minds, we're thinking, will this pan out? Will I benefit from this? Will I profit from this? Will I come away from this feeling better about myself? Well, I come away from this feeling like, like I have accomplished something. And here's the good news for you, friend. When God looked at you and realized what a pitiful investment that you and I would be, He still sent His Son, His perfect and only Son for us. Knowing that in our trespasses, we had no ability to pay Him back. He generously gave. It is so good that He did not buy us back. He did not buy us, thereby putting us in debt where, oh my goodness, I get to spend the rest of my life trying to pay off the debt that Jesus gave us. No, friend, it is a gift. It is a gift. So this is what this means for us. We give, we don't buy. We genuinely give. So when you find that in your heart creeping up when you give and you find yourself thinking, well, I want something from this, be careful. That's not giving. That's buying. And be careful. You may, just maybe, have reduced the will of God and the kingdom of God coming on this earth to capitalism, to some sort of fiscal transaction. And friend, God and His infinite wealth do not fit into our decimal system. The second thing you see between giving and buying is what I would just lovingly call throwing away. I, I got to experience this firsthand. You see, see, Technically, throwing away is simply discarding or disposing of something that has no real value. 
you're, you're getting rid of it because you don't really need it. That's what throwing away is. Think of all the things that you dispose of. You get rid of it because you don't really need it. Some of you are hoarders, so this is a bad analogy for you, okay? But like the rest of you who get rid of things that you no longer use, you, you get rid of them. You know, I don't need this anymore. This is taking up space. I learned this the most uh, brutally and most powerfully. I was a pastor, uh, an associate on staff at a church that um, my, one of my roles was to administrate a clothes closet that we had for the downtown area. It was a clothes closet. And I learned the difference between giving and throwing away very well. You see, we were an older church. We were, we were you know, mostly elderly. Um, and people would basically come in to the, to the clothes closet and they would want to, big quotes here, give us clothes. But in reality, can I just be honest with you? We were, we were just cleaning out their closet for them. And one of the most powerful things I heard people say, because I'm, I'm talking like, like leisure suits, like polyester sport coats, polyester bell bottoms. I'm talking like this is, this is what people are hiding up in their closet. And they would come and they'd go, oh, I just want to give this. Can, can we give this to someone? And I'm like, like, if you hate people who don't clothe, have clothes, yeah. Like if you're like, you know, what, you know what let's do with all the people who don't own clothes? Let's like put them in goofy clothes, right? If, like, if you hate them, okay? But, but that's, you, see, you begin to see the difference between like giving and throwing away. And they would say something very revealing. They would go, oh, thank you so much for doing this. I was just going to throw it away. I'm glad that this will go somewhere nice. I'm glad that someone will get some use out of this. You know that our dumpster stayed full almost all the time because we had to throw that stuff away. Because if you really love anyone and they come and they're like, hey, I need clothes, you don't go, let's dress you like Saturday Night Fever, right? <laughs> you don't, again, like if you want, if you want to, I mean, be, be careful what you say. Everything that was out of style comes back in style, but still, you don't, you don't like force that on someone. And people would say, I like beggars can't be choosers. Really? Really? You're like encouraging them to rummage, them, rummage through your trash? And I began to realize very clearly the difference between giving something of value and throwing away something that's disposable. In the United States, we live in a, a, a place that, although I would argue this is maybe smaller than it once was, at least proportionally speaking, we have this category in our own lives, and it's called disposable income. We live in, a, think about that, and we, what, a blessed, what a blessed people we are, right? We live in a place where we have a thing called disposable income. You can literally have money that you can dispose of. I mean, just think about where that fits. Think of the phrase disposable diaper, Right? That seems like a more appropriate use of the word disposable. And you say disposable income, that's where we live. Here's why this is important. This picture of throwing away has permeated our culture. And we have in our own society created not only a category for disposable income, money that they won't really need to survive, but now it's created categories in our own lives that permeate our relationships and it has messed up our concept of generosity. Here's how this plays out. Some of you are thinking, I'm not generous, I can't give this stuff away because I can't afford to be generous. <laughs> I can't afford to. And, then, and you'll say something like this, one day I'm going to have enough money to where I can be generous. Friend, that's not how it works. Jesus makes it very clear. When you do have that money, you won't. You won't be generous. Because the same greedy heart that's beating in your chest will still be in your chest beating very loudly when you win the lottery. You won't all of a sudden want to give things away. Why is this important? Because this idea of giving away leftovers, of disposing of things and calling it giving has permeated even our relationships. 
And I hear people say things like, I'm, I'm saving up or I'm, or I'm kind of getting ready to start dating or to get married. I don't have quite enough money. I'm saving up to get, date, to, to, to get married. Like, I don't have enough time to be, to be dating. I don't have time. I don't have what I need to invest to get married. Right, because some person wants your leftovers. Some person wants your throwaways of time and attention. And I hear people saying, well, we're saving up. We're not ready to be a parent yet. We're saving up to adopt or to have children. Right, because your children just want your throwaways. Your children just want the leftovers of your life. And now, I love you, but some of you are struggling in your relationships, your marriage, and your parenting because you're wondering why in the world your throwaways aren't satisfying to the people around you. And you're wondering why your spouse isn't content with just getting the leftovers. You're wondering why your children want your undivided attention. If anything else, this is a great Mother's Day celebration, is it not? This is a great day to acknowledge that your mom, at some point, loved you to a great extent, to the the extent that she gave you her undivided attention. Right? She set aside her life for around nine months. I mean, you could argue it's more than that. Right? She set aside her own, her own habits, her own routine for you. She made sacrifices for you. So please, don't give your leftovers. That's not giving, it's throwing away. Don't part with your leftovers or your throwaways for the church and God's ministry. Don't part with your leftovers and throwaways for relationships. You will find it to be terribly unsatisfying and is not giving. The last thing I think we see here is that generosity is trusting God. Generosity is trusting that God is doing something. Think about the amazing amount of trust that this woman had. I mean, Jesus is essentially saying that there's a broken system and this poor woman came and gave all she had to it. All she had to live on. Can you imagine the trust that she must have had? So here's the way I think this affects our relationships as well. For our parents that we just did a dedication, let me just drop on this. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And just like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. For blessed is the one who fills his quiver with them. He shall, be, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks in his, in, with his enemies at the gate. Did you get this? What are you preparing your children for? The Bible tells us that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're His. So we dedicate our children back to Him. But it also says that they're like arrows. And what greater purpose is there to an arrow than to aim and to bury it into the heart of the enemy. So what are you equipping your children to do? Are we equipping our children to essentially, and I'm worried that this might be the case in my own house at times, we're hovering over our own children, we're basically equipping them to live in our house for the rest of their lives, and I have this sixth sense in me, like I'm like, yes, that would be awesome, like little girls never leave me, right? I've watched some videos from their, their baby days just yesterday, and I'm like, Bleh. it's like... I don't, I don't know why, I don't know where that came from. So part of me, selfishly, would love for them just to live in my house forever, right? Let's just add on and they'll live here. But friend, the arrow was never meant to hide in the quiver. The arrow was meant to be pulled back, taut with a great deal of resistance and released into the heart of the enemy. One day your child and my child will want to share the gospel in a deep, dark place. 
Will we send them, shoot them? Will they fly straight into the darkness, deep into the heart of the enemy? Or will they be so afraid of leaving their parents that they will quiver and not go anywhere? Friend, let's realize that generosity is trusting God and trusting everything to Him. We can trust Him with our finances, our jobs, our spouses, our families, our relationships. We can trust God with our singleness. We can trust God with our marriage. We can trust God with our poverty. We can trust God with our wealth. We can trust God in every circumstance. And if you think that I'm being harsh, if you think that God is being demanding by wanting these things from us, I want want you to hear this good news. I want you to hear the gospel. But the final words of this chapter might better be paraphrased. She, that is this poor woman, laid down her whole life. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. The last words, it says, all she had to live on. It literally, ton bion, which is from bios, where we get the word biology, life, literally says that this woman gave her whole life. Friend, we can be generous, not because it's in our heart to do so. We need to be reminded all the time. We can be generous and we can give to God's church, to the people in need, to our friends, to anything we see. We can trust God with these things. Why? Because in the end, this word about this woman and her giving is actually a story about Jesus and His giving. He gives to a broken system and He walks up Golgotha to die to redeem a broken system. And that generosity changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness. Uh, We thank you so much for your care and kindness. We thank you so much that we have benefited from things we do not deserve. God, you call us to an experience of generosity um, that, that is not come easy or natural to us. So in these moments, would you begin to stir in us a deep and abiding awareness of your goodness to us? God, if this seems demanding to us, if there's some in this room that maybe they've never trusted you in this way and to to trust you in this way seems terrifying, well then, God, I'm so glad that they're here. May they hear this good news that in the end, you are the one who has given the most generously. Instead of withholding your one perfect son, you gave freely and abundantly on our behalf so that now you draw us near to you and you call out to us that we have a home, we have a place in your presence that you have set aside for us. For those of us, maybe we know this good news, maybe we're recipients of this gift, would you begin to loosen our grip on the things around us? Uh, Would you begin to loosen our grip on, on the things that you've loaned to us? Would we loan them back to you with the same kind of generosity you've loaned them to us? We love you for this. We want you to transform our lives and transform our community by this radical generosity to where we're willing to let go of the things that are valuable to us for the sake of seeing your kingdom come in this world. And we're willing to let go of what seems most valuable to us because we know that you have done the same. We can let go of our children, our finances, our relationships because God, you have let go of all of those things for us on our behalf in Jesus. Thank you for this. Amen.